Let's ask God's blessing upon the word. Lord, I would ask that you today do something that is supernatural. That you would come down to this place in a special way that your spirit would work in a unique power to this world so that, Father, we would come here with all of our baggage, all of our little trinkets and treasures that we cling to, and that, Father, we would see the greatness of your Son, Jesus, and the plan that has been unfolded and will continue to unfold until the day of his return, and that, Father, we would see that all that we have in our hands pales in comparison to Christ, and that, Father, we would live a life in warm embrace of the one who laid down his life for us. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in us, Father, so that as a result of this text being penetrated into our hearts, so that, Lord, we would not be the same, but that, Father, today we would be a people who take one treasure that we came in with, that we would set it down, and that we would take up a better one. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think that one of the reasons that I have always liked this particular set of parables that were just read is that they connect so very well with my own childhood imagination. My brothers and I, we used to take our treasures from around the house and we would seal them in old Folgers metal coffee cans with... Uh, duct tape sealing down the lid and then we would bury them in the backyard where no one else could find them and of course we would draw these elaborate maps complete with geographical locators from our parents yard in order to find those beloved treasures later ten paces north from the nearest corner of the garage 15 paces east past the walnut tree. Five paces north just before mom's garden. X marks the spot. Kids love the idea of buried treasure, of knowing that something mysterious and wonderful is hidden in a secret location that no one else knows about. And adults love the idea of treasure, too. Jesus often uses vivid imagery that is meant to captivate our attention. He has previously communicated truth through the imagery of planted seeds that are either gobbled up by birds or scorched by the sun or choked out by weeds or that are planted on good ground, leading to good fruit. He has also related his message through the imagery of a wheat field, where a man sows seed, but then an enemy comes in the night. And what does that enemy do? He plants weeds among the good seed. Weeds that look an awful lot like the wheat, at least until that wheat matures and bears fruit. And then Jesus speaks of the end of the age when those weeds will be burned in fire while the wheat is gathered into his barn. The Lord has also spoken, as we have seen, of a mustard seed 
that little seed that grows large and serves as a blessing to all of the birds around it who nest in its branches. He has also spoken of leaven, that little lump that is put within the flour that expands to make all of it leavened. And now, now, he continues to communicate his kingdom. Jesus speaks of treasure and of a pearl of great value. And then he goes back to another analogy that certainly grabbed the attention of these disciples, fishing. Jesus is communicating the truth of his kingdom to you and to me today through wonderful, vivid imagery. And today he relates to us both the incomparable joy of the kingdom along with the sorting which will occur on the day that his kingdom is fully consummated. His joy and the sorting. And there are two points from our text as we consider these. Number one, the kingdom of heaven is a more valuable joy than everything else in your life. I'll say it again. It's not hyperbole. The kingdom of heaven is a more valuable joy than everything else in your life. My second point from our text is that the kingdom of heaven will be more holy than anything you have ever imagined. That it will be more holy than anything you have ever thought possible. So point number one, the kingdom of heaven is the more valuable joy than everything else in your life. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now Jesus communicates here through parable pairs. Parable pairs. Both of these images, that of the treasure that is hidden in the field in verse 44, and that of the pearl of great value in verses 45 and 46, are essentially communicating the same truth. That the kingdom is a more valuable joy than anything else that we have. Note the correlations here. He speaks of treasure, and then he speaks of a pearl of great value. He speaks of a man who found, and then he speaks of a merchant who found. He speaks of a man selling all that he had and buying a field, and then he speaks of a merchant who sells all that he has and buys a pearl. These two parables are essentially communicating the same thing, that the kingdom of heaven is a more valuable joy than anything else that we have. And Jesus has presented truths in pairs before in this third discourse for the purpose of emphasis. Why does he give two little snippets? Why does he give two little parables? To drive it home. In verses 31 and 32, the parable of the mustard seed 
It communicates essentially the same thing as we saw last week as the parable of the leaven in verse 33. That Christ's kingdom, though it starts very small in this world, it will grow and it will eventually become a great blessing to all of his world. And, furthermore, in the parable of the weeds that we also saw last week, verses 24 through 30, explained by Jesus later in verses 36 through 43, that parable of the weeds, the same essential truth is communicated by another parable. The parable of the net, which we're going to consider very shortly in verses 47 through 50. And both of those are essentially communicating that though Christ's kingdom is currently mixed with both believers and unbelievers, a separation will one day occur in his kingdom on the day that his kingdom is fully consummated. Same truth being revealed. So Christ is using two images, two men here, two treasures to relate this truth to us. Now before I go any further, I have to explain that there are a couple of ways that these two parables can be pressed wrongly. There are a couple of ways that these two parables in verses 44 through 46 can be pressed wrongly. And what I mean by wrongly is that some Bible readers who have not yet learned the nature of this genre, which is parable. Some Bible readers who have not yet learned the parable genre seek to find connections to life reality in each individual part of these parables, thinking that each object or each situation in the parables must represent something to be taken literally, or at least to its fullest extent, in their lives. Instead of simply seeking out the main idea of the parable that Jesus seeks to communicate, they seek to make direct connections in the parable's individual parts and right to their life and to their theology. And what this does is it often leads them to a skewed understanding of the word, a skewed theology. Now let me give two examples of how this can be done in the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl. In verse 44, notice there, upon the man's discovery of the treasure in the field, he went and covered it up, rehiding it, it says, in order to buy it and to have it for himself. Now, wrong thinking here might say, well, this must mean that Christians are okay keeping the truth about Jesus to themselves. That it's okay for them to hide it from others once they've found it. You see how you could wrongly come to that conclusion? Now, of course, that's an extreme example of this. And one, I think, that is quickly dispelled by looking at other places in Matthew. For instance, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus said that, that we are to be the light of the world. We're not to hide, we're to put it up for all to see. So that can quickly be demolished, that wrong thinking, but it persists even today. But this is an example of trying to make too tight of a correlation between a parable and the Christian life instead of seeking out the main idea of the parable and applying that to the Christian life. Now another example of wrong thinking one that has been adopted by people in the past, 
is that since verse 44 speaks of the man buying the field, and since verse 46 speaks of the man buying the pearl, the kingdom is therefore something that we must actually pay for in order to have it. That the entrance into the kingdom, and even having the kingdom in one's heart today, that it must somehow be purchased from the owner of that kingdom. In other words, we have to do some form of a work or pay some kind of a price in order to have the kingdom's salvation. But we know, as we just had read earlier today, the kingdom of God, the salvation of Jesus Christ, is extended to sinners as a free gift. We receive it freely. And then we find out that as we receive it, the world comes against us. And oh, there is a cost to it. There is a cost. Christian, can you see how such a wrong approach to the genre of parable could confuse some into an eternally dangerous theology? It is right that we rightly interpret Scripture. Now let's look carefully at the main idea behind Christ's words here. Jesus is seeking to communicate the fathomless value, the incomparable worth of his kingdom to those who find it. Neither parable here is meant to communicate a works-based righteousness, where you have to do something, where you have to live a righteous way in order to earn the kingdom of God. Just as neither parable is meant to communicate that God's kingdom truth should be hidden again once it has been found. What Jesus is saying here is that this kingdom that his disciples had found in him is better than everything else they could ever have or had at that point in time. The man in verse 44 discovers hidden in a field a treasure. A treasure. There's no word that this first man was seeking such a treasure. He's perhaps just a day laborer working out in a field, but while he's out there toiling away, he stumbles across something better than he ever thought possible. And even though he did nothing to earn it, he found it. But upon finding it, he recognized its all-surpassing worth. So he went, and he gathered up everything he owned. Perhaps he even went and begged and borrowed to get a little bit more, and then he bought that field so that that treasure could be his and enjoyed by him. Why? Why does he do this? Because he knew that he had found something far more valuable than everything else he had in his life. Now notice the merchant in verses 45 and 46. This guy is actually out looking for fine pearls. Evidently, he's a pearl hunter. This man is seeking. He wants to find something great. And then he finds it. He finds a pearl of great value. He didn't earn it. There's nothing here that says he deserved it. He simply found it. Eureka! Here it is. And upon finding it, he recognized its all-surpassing worth. So he, like the first man, he went and he gathered up everything he owned, 
Perhaps he also begged and borrowed a little to get a little more, and then he bought that pearl and he made it his. Why did he do this? Because he knew that he had found something far more valuable than anything else he'd had before or could ever have. Jesus is relating the supreme value of his kingdom to us. That if we have his kingdom and we lose everything else along with it, then we still have absolutely everything we need. Absolutely everything that is of eternal worth and absolutely the best joy that can be found. My friends, catch that word in verse 44. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. In his joy. We are not talking here about a temporary pleasure where endorphins are released into our bodies and we experience a fleeting sensation of euphoria. That's not this joy. We're talking about eternal pleasure. We're talking about lasting rest. We're talking about enduring contentment, persistent peace, a heavenly treasure a happiness that cannot be taken away. Jesus says, if you find the kingdom of heaven, you have a more valuable joy than everything else in your life. And the apostle Paul said the exact same thing. Because when he wrote to the church at Philippi, in chapter 3, verse 8, and verse 9, he said, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul said he had found something of a surpassing worth. And in finding this thing of surpassing worth, this relationship with the God who had made him, he considered everything else, though they may be good things, he considered everything else to be rubbish or dung. Insignificant in comparison to what he had found. John Piper, a former pastor, a prolific author, and a man who I think has written more about joy in God than anyone since Jonathan Edwards. He wrote on this passage these words. The kingdom of God is so valuable that losing everything on earth but getting the kingdom is a happy trade-off. Having the omnipotent Saving reign of Christ in our lives is so valuable that if we lose everything in order to have it, it is a joyful sacrifice. End quote. My friends, even if this kingdom costs you everything, it is worth it. Even if this kingdom costs you your friends, it is worth it. Even if this kingdom costs you a job or a significant amount of wealth or a pride of position, it is 
worth it. If this kingdom sends you to a faraway mission field, or if it compels you to live small now in order to give large now, it is worth it. If it costs you your comfort, if it costs you your security, if it costs you even your life, this kingdom is worth it. You can sell all that you have in your life, and it will be worth having the joy of this kingdom. So now I have to answer the question, why? Why? Why is the kingdom of heaven a more valuable joy than everything else in your life and in my life? Why? Why is it a treasure? Why is it a pearl of great value? Why is it a joy of more worth than everything else? Why? Well, let me give you just five reasons from right here in Matthew's gospel. Let's let the text tell us. Number one, it's more valuable because the righteous, the sons and daughters of the kingdom, will one day shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Look at verse 43. Look up a little bit. Jesus says, then, referring to the day when the kingdom fully comes, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. I don't know all that that means, I have to be honest. Jonathan Edwards takes a crack at it. He, he speaks of our ability to not only reflect God's glory back to him, like a bright object reflects the sun, but that as we reflect and as we have greater capacity to reflect the glory of God, our enjoyment of God increases. So our enjoyment, our enjoyment is wrapped up in our shining, and we are shining like the sun, which means our enjoyment has the capacity of the brightness of the sun. That's a thought. We will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. There will be a brilliance, there will be a goodness, there will be a wonderful experience that will never end in the kingdom of the Father. I can only taste a little bit of what that's like now, but I have full confidence that in that day, it will be better than anything I ever imagined here on earth. We live, Christians do, in joyful hope of a perfect day which will come and we will enjoy. Secondly, it's more valuable because the kingdom will bring great blessing to this earth. Look at verse 32. He speaks of this mustard seed that turns into a tree. He says, it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and he becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, I'm not going to delve into that. I did more last week. But the reality explained here is that Jesus Christ is building a kingdom that is one day going to so expand that all of the earth is going to be blessed. Now, I had 
a Bible study this morning with some teenagers. And we talked about how God originally created the world. And after each point along the path of his creative activity, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he makes man, explains a whole lot more about man, and then at the end of making man, he says, it's very good. Good, 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 very good. When he makes an image bearer, one who resembles him, he says, very good. And then what happens in a couple of chapters? Man tarnishes it all. We ruin it. We bring a curse upon this earth. But in Christ's kingdom, as he begins inside of individual hearts who meet together corporately for encouragement and build each other up and grow, as his kingdom expands, it begins to fill more and more people's lives. And eventually the point comes when Jesus Christ steps his feet down back upon this earth, declares rulership over all of it, and the curse begins to fade away. And all that was good that was then tarnished becomes very good again. In other words, what once was Eden in a small little place on earth, is going to expand and it is going to fill all of this place. Kingdom people are experiencing that now and kingdom people will experience that on the day to come. Third, it is better, more valuable, because kingdom treasures are never destroyed but will be eternally enjoyed. Hold your hand here, but flip back to chapter 6. Flip back to chapter 6. Look at verse 19. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There is a treasure, and it is a lasting one. As Peter says, it's imperfect, it's undefiled, it's unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There is a kingdom awaiting kingdom people. And it's one that is filled with a treasure, the treasure of Christ, that is far surpassing all of the things that get rusty here. All of the little trinkets, all of the little things that we beloved in our life that are here today and gone tomorrow. And number four, it's more valuable because the kingdom is enjoyed even now because we have relationship with the Father through the Son. Look, look at chapter 5, or chapter 6, excuse me. Look at verses 9 and 10. As Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he tells them this. Pray then like this, chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I mentioned, when we were back in that text many, many weeks ago, 
Jesus relates a privilege to his disciples that's really not all that known before. He encourages his disciples and hands lifted up to God to pray to him and to say, Abba, Father, my dad, my father, my God. There's a parental relationship and intimacy that Jesus encourages here. We, if we have Christ and have the kingdom, have the Father as our Father even now. In other words, my friends, I am not waiting for one second to enjoy the kingdom privileges that have been given to me now. Why are we doing that? Why are we waiting until the kingdom for the privilege that we've been given now which is a relationship with the Father whereby we commune with him as we partake of him in his word and respond to him in prayer that says, My heavenly Father, you love me and I love you. Would your name be hallowed? And that kingdom that's to come, would you make it so? We actually get to a relationship with this God. And as John says, this relationship is eternal life. Number five, this kingdom is a better privilege, a better joy, a better value because the promises of the Beatitudes are realized in this kingdom that we have found. Flip back to chapter five, look at verse three. Jesus says in these wonderful words, blessed, so happy are, enjoy, enjoying are, these are the people who have enjoyment. These are the people who have found rest and blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christ followers are blessed because we fully enjoy comfort from all sorrow. We will have a whole earth inheritance we will have the satisfaction of righteousness not only in us, but around us in this world. We will have mercy from God everlasting, and we will have the presence of God to enjoy as his sons and daughters forevermore. The kingdom is a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom is a pearl of great value. And it is better, my friend, than everything else in your life. My friends, there are two reasons why we may not see the high value of Christ's kingdom in our lives today. Two reasons why we might not. Number one, we might not see the high value of Christ's kingdom because we don't, we don't even yet know Christ who is the king of the kingdom. We might, not, we might not yet grasp its value 
because we don't yet know the Lord of the kingdom. We don't yet know him. There are many people, especially across this land, across this nation, who profess Jesus in some way or another, but they do not know him. They have thought that a prayer would save them. They had thought that attendance in some place on a regular basis would save them. They had thought that some waters being put upon their head or being put all of their body would save them. They had thought that doing good things to other people or living a fairly reputable life would save them. But what they failed to understand is that the only thing that can save them is the Savior Jesus Christ. And they've never comprehended the fact that their sin has separated them fully from God and the only way for them to be restored with God is to repent of that sin and embrace Jesus Christ in faith and then see their sins washed away and have that relationship with the Father given. You may not see the value of the kingdom today, my friend, because you don't know the king. So I want to impress upon you the fact that you can know this king today. That this treasure hidden in the field is actually being expressed to you right now as this word is read and hopefully accurately interpreted and given to you. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, the pearl of the kingdom, the treasure that is to come, the gospel of Jesus Christ is capable of saving your soul if you will turn from your sins and embrace the Savior Jesus who shed his blood on the cross for you, rising again three days later, my friend, you will be forgiven. And that joy will begin in you like a mustard seed and just like the kingdom, it's going to expand the more and more that you know him until the day you see his face and your joy will be complete. So that's the first reason why people don't see the high value of it. And the second reason, which I fear is common with us, we don't see its high value because we have become numb to the better things of God in our pursuit of the lesser things of earth. We have become numb to the better things of God due to our pursuit, our focus, our emphasis, our distraction by the lesser things of earth. We fill up our lives with toil. We fill up our lives with family. We fill up our lives with entertainment. We fill up our lives with a whole host of good things and we drown out Jesus, relegating him to one little place in the circle of our lives, rather than seeing the significance of him and the joy that is found when he is right where he should be, not merely at the center, but encompassing the whole. We don't see the high value because we've become numb. Oh yes, it is cap Christians are capable of becoming numb to God's joy. Oh yes, our consciences can be seared, the word says, and we can be oh so very much distracted. Now, I want to take a moment not to pick on them, but to implore them, and then I'm going to implore you. But I want to take a moment and talk to the teenagers, the tweenagers, the teenagers, whatever you want to call them. You can't vote yet, I'm talking about you, okay? You will never grasp, get this, because I didn't get it till I was about 21, 
and I battle it today. You will never grasp the supreme value of Christ's kingdom until you recognize that your endless amounts of screen time, your devotion to entertainment, and your all-consuming focus on the things of here and now are zapping your ability to see the infinite significance of Christ, his gospel, and his plan for this world. You have so filled up your hearts and your minds with other things that there is no room for the better thing. You don't see all those other things through the lens of the best thing. You've drowned out the best thing with the little things. I did it too. I'm with you there. For me, it was a Sega Genesis. For me, it was girls, lust, sports, a whole host of things, all the little gods they put around me, and everyone has their own. I get that. We drown him out. And right now, teens, all your parents are thinking, yes, thank you, Pastor Joe. It's great. And so, teens, now I'm going to say, first to your parents, your parents, have you gone and talked to them lately about what's foremost? Have you had that conversation with them, and are you continuing to have it with them? Are you working with them, and are you modeling it yourself? That's not a guilt drive. That's a, hey, look up and see the great thing. You need it, and they do too. What are you focused on, mom and dad? You too will never grasp the supreme value of Christ's kingdom until you recognize, mom and dad, that your endless screen time, your devotion to entertainment, and your all-consuming focus on the here and now, politics, COVID, you name it, they are zapping your ability to see the infinite significance of Christ, his gospel, and his plan for this world. And is it any surprise that they don't get the point when they haven't seen it from you? Seek the better joy, young people. Seek the better joy, people of Riverside. That's our first point. Point number two. The kingdom of heaven will be more holy than anything you have ever imagined. Look at verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This time, Jesus uses the fishing analogy in a different way. If you recall back in chapter 2, Jesus said to his disciples, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He told them that they would come follow him, that he would turn them into people who are out there collecting men as they preach the gospel and see people saved and entered into the net that is Christ's kingdom. But here, Jesus changes up the analogy as he often does. He changes it up to show the contrast between good fish and bad fish who make up fish of every kind. A net is thrown into the sea and it gathers fish of both types. The net with the fish is then drawn to the shore by the men who proceed to sort the fish. 
The good fish are put into containers, for they are profitable and they are preserved, and the bad fish are thrown away. Now this parable, as I've mentioned, is ultimately stating the same essential truth that we saw last week with the parable of the weeds. If you recall, upon considering verses 36 to 43 in Christ's explanation of the parable of the weeds, we learned that the kingdom corrupted will become the kingdom perfected. That the kingdom corrupted now will become the kingdom perfected then. That Christ's kingdom at the first, in the here and now, is going to include both rebels and loyal subjects. But in the end, upon his return at the end of the age, only his righteous people, his fruit bearers, would remain. He says in verse 40, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun of the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now remember, my friends, the kingdom of heaven is God's sovereign reign over all things as he saves his precious people and brings justice and restoration to his world. And this is currently realized already in the hearts of God's redeemed people who are being transformed from the inside out to look, to talk, to act more like their Savior, Jesus Christ. But this kingdom awaits a final fulfillment when salvation will be fully realized, when judgment will be finally conducted, and when the earth will be fully restored. That is on the day to come. Now Jesus is relating essentially the same reality here in this parable of the net. He says in verse 49, so will it be at the end of the age. He is speaking about the day to come, when he will return to earth and take up his fully consummated kingdom, judging his earth and reigning over all of it. On that day, he says that the angels will separate the bad fish from the good fish, so to speak. That is, they will separate those who follow Christ as his disciples through faith alone in him, through his gospel, from those who reject him and his gospel. And those who reject Christ will face an eternal sorrowful judgment that I've explained enough and it's broad enough tears that I'm just going to read it today. Verse 50, And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christ will one day make his kingdom a holy kingdom. A kingdom more holy, more set apart from sin, more set apart from sin's effects, than we could ever imagine. The evil being separated from the righteous unto judgment here is, I think, emblematic of the holy nature of Christ's fully consummated, soon-coming kingdom from heaven to earth. Because in that kingdom, there will be no sin or temptation to sin. Oh, praise God. Because in that kingdom, there will be no pain and no sorrow. Hallelujah, Jesus. 
Because in that kingdom, there will be no brokenness, no racism, no murder, no theft, no adultery, no broken relationships, no idolatry that so plagues our hearts. No, just pure, joyous kingdom under a perfectly just king. The prophet Isaiah, and again, I think Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, he had two books open in front of him. I don't know if I've said this to everyone. I think Matthew, the way I envision him, is he had two books open. First of all, he had the gospel of Mark. And he had that as a reference. And I think he also had the book of Isaiah. And I think those two just profoundly informed him putting together this gospel. Because if you were to go and do a word search of all the sermons I've preached, that word Isaiah is going to come up an awful lot. Because he continually refers back to him. Well, the prophet Isaiah, he wrote of the holy joy of that day that is to come. In Isaiah 35, verses 8 through 10, it says this. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon them. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's what Isaiah says. And then the Apostle John, one of the very disciples who is sitting on that beachside listening to Christ's parable, excuse me, in the house at this point, listening to this parable, he also wrote of the kingdom holiness. And this I want you to see firsthand. I would like you to firsthand witness what he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to ask you to, to turn over to John's Revelation, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, verses 11 through chapter 21, verse 4. It's, it's page 977 in your pew Bible. So if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 977. I want to help you out with that. Turn over to Revelation 20, beginning at verse 11, or page 977 in your pew Bible. Revelation 20, the last book of the Bible, verse 11 it says this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book's according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In other words, the kingdom corrupted will become the kingdom perfected. There will be judgment at the end. There will be salvation at the end. And there will be restoration at the end. All when Christ comes. My friends, if you don't long for holiness, then you won't long for the kingdom. If you don't long for righteousness and peace on earth, if you don't long to see your heart free of idolatry, if you don't long to see all of the curse removed, if you don't long for sorrow and sighing to flee away, but also to see the righteousness of, of Jesus Christ placed upon his throne, if you don't long for that, then you won't long for the kingdom. The kingdom is meant for people who long for holiness. The kingdom is meant for the people who have found out that they're not holy, that they need a holy God to intervene, and then in their joy they recognize that this holy God has intervened, that this holy God sent his holy son, who died on the cross, a most unholy place, shedding his blood to pay for your sins and mine, and then he raised a holy resurrection so that all of those who know him in faith are his holy sons and daughters who will live lives of ever-increasing holiness until the day we see his face holy in his presence forevermore in his holy kingdom. This is who we are. And if that isn't what you desire, you'll never long for the kingdom. Let me make a clarion call as we finish up today. Let the trumpets blaze. Hear it clear, my friends. Here's my exhortation. Please make the kingdom of heaven your most valuable treasure, your highest aim, and your most prized purpose. Recognize that what you have found in the field far surpasses everything else you could have ever imagined. Live now in kingdom delight. 
Recognize now that you have this vertical relationship with God that is heightened and further enjoyed by the horizontal relationship that you have with his people. And enjoy the kingdom now. And with that, live for kingdom people. Make them your life mission. If you've got things getting in the way of that life mission, change it. That might take time. It's undoubtedly going to take sacrifice. Change it. Make people your mission. Because as we just read, some of us did yesterday in 1 Thessalonians, when Paul talked about people, he called them his joy and his crown. His joy, the thing he longed to see filled with spiritual fruit. And then lastly, live with kingdom hope. Let it be the hope of the kingdom that drives your life. As I often say, live eternally. Live with an eternal mindset, living that what you see now is only in the here and now, but that there is the eternal day to come. Eighty and eternity. Eighty and eternity. Most Americans live around 80, li- 80 years in their lives and then they face eternity. My challenge, Christian, is to focus not so much on the 80, but on the eternity that is to come. And then when you focus on the eternity that is to come, God will use you in those 80 years to be a blessing to his people as you enjoy him. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We're so easily distracted. Lord, we have so many other little things that compete in our hearts for the kingdom truth, for the relationship we have and the hope we have in you. I pray that you would deeply help us. I pray that you'd help us to see through all the fog, that we would see Christ on his throne, and that we would bask in his presence. Lord, if there be any here who don't know Christ, I pray that they would seek out a friend that they would come talk to a pastor like me or some other people who would love to share with them more about the truth of Jesus. That, Lord, you would give us opportunity to minister to them and let them know that they are loved and welcomed and that we long to see them have the joy that we have. Oh, Lord, would you please do that? And we ask this in Jesus' name.